Good morning, noon or night, wherever and whenever you are listening, you are listening to The Shift. I am your host, Doug McKenty. This episode is recorded on July 28th, 2017. If you like what you're hearing, please help us out on Patreon. That's www.patreon.com backslash The Shift. For more information, visit our Facebook page at The Shift with Doug McKenty. Join the conversation uh, on Twitter, at McKenty. And uh, if you want to check out our archives or any other information, check out our website, www.theshiftnow.com. All right, my guests on the podcast today are the dynamic duo of Lauren von Bernuth and Arane Sharp. Together, they are creating the powerful new source for independent citizen journalism known as Citizen Truth. Lauren has a background as a small business owner and sexual assault therapist. She brings to her journalism a passion to help create an economy that provides equal opportunities to everyone and a belief that unhealed trauma is a root cause of many social maladies. Lorraine is a Jamaican-born American citizen with a particular interest in the impact of U.S. foreign policy and what it has on other countries. His activism started with the Occupy movement and includes a desire to strengthen constitutional rights and the rights of American citizens to be free from government oversight. He is concerned about the college and national debt crises and uses his journalism to hold the government accountable. Together, they are Citizen Truth. For more information, visit citizentruth.org. And thank you guys for helping make the shift. Welcome to the program. How's it going today? It's good to be here. Good. Yeah, Thanks you bet. I was really excited to find you guys. Um, I don't know. I've probably been following you for about six months. And I just ran into you on Facebook. The first thing that kind of... Um, that I noticed that really clicked with me was trying to do journalism beyond the left-right paradigm. So I wanted to start there. You know, why was that important for you all? I know it's a big part of, of what I like to do here on this program because I'm just so tired of everybody arguing with each other when there's so many obvious yeah. problems, right? You know, like, let's just solve the problem. <laughs> for sure. I, I mean, I guess uh, with me, I believe that um, a lot of people are just like, I feel like everybody's like a, a bunch of crabs in a barrel, right? With the left-right paradigm. They're always just arguing about we want this and we want that. And people don't realize that they all want right. the same thing, but they can't see past these uh, two labels and they just keep labeling each other and they just keep fighting. Yeah, I feel like a big problem is that people forgot that there's actually a lot of common ground and... Um, you know, there's this common ground where we all want good health care. We all want good education. We all want, you know, safety. Um, we want good foreign policy. But we're stuck at these divisions of how to get there. And if we stay stuck on these opposite sides, like it has to be this way or that way, we can never actually talk with each other and try to achieve that common ground, which is the end solution, you know. So in a democracy, too, the whole idea is that we all have these different ideas and we come together in pursuit of that common goal of good education. But if we stay so stuck in our own divides, we never can sit down and talk with each other and uh, keep an open mind and try to get to that end goal. Yeah, I mean, I know? find it almost like a bad habit, too, when I'm talking to everyone or, you know, just talking to individual people. They, they're almost so ready to fight, and they're looking for that fight that they're forgetting that common ground. And so as a people, we just never get anything done. Certainly that's true in Congress. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, and I think, um, you know, if you study the history of politics, like after this election, um, Orain was a little more politically involved than I was. And then I, I was in college and then I kind of stepped away for a bit. And then after this election, I started to really try to understand 
how this country got into this situation. And if you study the history of our politics, I think you see that really the parties are actually relatively similar in terms of how they respond to the people and that there's actually studies that have been done showing that um, like then bottom 90, I think it's like the nine, nine, bottom 90% really have, there's no correlation between what the people want and what's happening in government. We're actually, you know, they're kind of operating in their own world and the people down here are fighting with each other while government's off doing their own thing because we're all stuck fighting with each other. So what, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about like the birth story of Citizen Truth then? Like how did you guys get together? What were you thinking about? Is this a, like a citizen journalism project? Um, you know, what was the impetus behind getting, getting the motivation getting started here? Well, uh, the motivation that originally started, it was like a, Citizen Truth first started out in different names. Like uh, the first name was, I think it was called the Baseline Project. And uh, that, I mean, what would you explain the Baseline Project? Well, that, that was like this idea that we were all on this baseline and we were trying to get people back down at the baseline. But, um, you know, how do you do that? So we started just writing and trying to, um, I don't know, I think like we both just got really tired of hearing like Democrats this and Republicans this. And I think we were trying to put out a voice that wasn't pitting one against the other. Yeah, exactly. And like, uh, I think with Citizen Truth, too, we also wanted to go for a more extreme approach, not anything just like on the uh, surface. So like, you know, me with war and everything, if I know people on the left and the right are bickering and arguing about this and that, and I know that our government's been doing things in other countries to start another war, I'm just like, you know, completely stop. It's like focus on this and then you could get back to arguing that once we get this threat out of the way. And, you know, all this stuff with Iran and the Middle East and nobody's just not paying attention to that at all. Yeah, I think you saw like with the Syria thing when Trump um, shot the missiles off to Syria, it was like pretty much everybody was supporting him and there was no voice that was against it. And I think... Um, it's just that voice needs to be out there too. That's questioning it and saying, "Wait, why are we doing this? What's going on?" Like instead of, but both parties just jump right behind it. You know, there's no, there's no, there's no outer critical voice. So that's what we're trying to yeah, do. Yeah, I mean, too. that's been one of the most amazing things. I think one of the things that really got me into it. I mean, I've been politically active really my whole life, but definitely with the Iraq War, I was just shocked. I mean, I was expecting there to be some kind of anti-war. You know, back in 2003, some kind of anti-war movement that was happening. Um, I remember listening to NPR and thinking, you know, that when they first started talking about going to Iraq and thinking, well, my God, you know, tomorrow I'm going to be listening to NPR and everybody's going to be laughing at what a terrible idea this is, right? And nobody did. I mean, nobody yeah. did. And it was like, what is going on here, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it was crazy. Yeah. You know, it all, it all stemmed from 2001. I don't see how anybody could justify invading Iraq from you know, the terrorist attack in 2001. Like, right. Iraq had nothing to do with it. I mean, at the time, I think I was 11 years old. And even when I was 11, I was just like, wait a minute. Like, is, is everyone <laughs> yeah, seeing the same thing I'm seeing? That's the thing. It doesn't make any sense. So <laughs> it, it's amazing that everybody in the mainstream media would sort of lockstep into war like that. And now we're seeing the same things. I mean, just like you're talking about in Syria, uh, in Iran. Um, you know, why aren't, why is nobody critical of Saudi Arabia? I, I mean, you guys have talked a lot about Saudi Arabia on the show. 
Why don't we talk for a second then about just what do you think is going on with the mainstream media and what got you into then this this sort of this citizen journalism project? This, and I call it independent media because I've learned to be like, oh, here's corporate media. They're all saying the same thing. And here's all these independent guys and, and, and they're saying basically the same thing, which is very different from what the corporate media is saying. So let's, you know, what are your thoughts about that? Um. I guess my thoughts on corporate media, I think a lot of them, they are, <laughs> I hate to say this, but they're all paid paid to talk about certain points and they shouldn't yeah. talk about certain subjects. And I mean, you see that with, like say, let's say with the Trump administration, the media was always against Trump this entire time. And then suddenly when he bombed Syria, all of a sudden they're all on board and seeing how he became president today. And, you know, that's just a clear example of who the media is actually on board with. Like, they're obviously they're on board for war and, you know, what the U.S. government does overseas yeah. and with their foreign policy. Yeah. I was studying this. Um, there's this one guy that um, uh, he's like a Saudi lobbyist and he's somewhere on uh, Trump's uh, cabinet. I don't remember what his role is or whatever, but I was so reading up on him. And they were talking about how in um, you know December in the Christmas parties in D.C. there's the Republican <coughs> Christmas party, and then you have the Saudi foreign minister, the Saudi lobbyist, and then you have Fox News, and they're all hanging out together. Right. So they obviously, <laughs> for you know, one thing, corporate media is profit motivated, right? They can't exist unless they make money. So whatever they do, they have to spin it a certain way to make money to make it interesting. But then they're also going to the same parties with these politicians. You know, the left does it too. And so they're they're sort of working all together to create this certain certain agenda that they have, you know. Yeah, and also another big thing I noticed with corporate media, like they are either left or right. You notice that there is no actual corporate media that's just like in the middle and then just looking at analyzing things logically. They're just either Republican or Democrat, left or right. Yeah. They're never in between at all because they know if they actually looked at it at the middle ground, it'll be a really bad thing. Yeah, it's been it's been pretty <laughs> Pretty yeah. wild from my point of view. I mean, I've been doing some interviews lately. Um, like, let's say, you know, I've got, I, I was interviewing Jason Goodman of Crowdsource the Truth last week, and he was saying, he was he was doing some work on the Clinton Foundation. And this actually happened with Julian Assange, too, because Julian Assange, obviously, WikiLeaks published the, the, the Democratic National Convention emails. And everybody wants to try to say, oh, he must be on the right. Like they're, you know, they're trying to push this left-right narrative and focus the whole thing. You know, Jason Goodman was saying, I'm getting called a Hillary hater or, you know, and it's like, but, but isn't the truth outside of any of this? Like if somebody's being corrupt, then they're corrupt. I mean, who cares what their politics are like? And so it's, it's, it gets insane. And I've, I've been wondering about that narrative at all. My, I mean, why is there Fox News and NPR or Fox News and MSNBC? I mean... Aren't they all supposed to be finding the truth? And then they're reporting the truth to us so we can make our own choices, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Have you um, have you read much up on, on the white helmets and so on? That's like a big... Yeah, a little bit. And I noticed your work actually uh, on that was right on too. That's a crazy propaganda story. I mean, it really is. Why don't we go into that? Yeah. I mean, so the white helmets are the Syrian, like the Syrian Red Cross and they, there's a documentary about them, and they're nominated for an Oscar, um, and they're nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize, too. And he was the first one to mention it to me. He was saying, oh, yeah, you know, the White Helmets, they're kind of, you know, not so great organization. And I was like, well, yeah. let me look into this, right? <laughs> so the thing I did is I Google it, just like Syrian White Helmets. 
And the first thing that popped up was a split screen of a Twitter of a tweet. And it's, it was like, it was a tweet in 2015 from the white helmets. It showed a picture of a bombed out building that said arrived at the scene of the blast. And then in, in this, there was a split screen of another tweet from, of another picture from 2013 using that same exact image. So I went looking for that. And if you look, there are like LA Times mainstream news sources are using that same exact photo in their articles in 2013. You can see the original articles. And at the time, I could still see the 2015 tweet on their Twitter. I think it's because um, of time. It's like moved down. Maybe you can pull it up somehow. But then I was like, wait a second. Like, what nonprofit organization <laughs> the picture from 2013 and says they're on the scene of the blast in 2015? So that, that started the whole wormhole. But what you realize, I mean, there's a ton of evidence. You could talk forever about it. But what you realize is a lot of these uh, corporate media reports or the United States government reports even are based off of information from the white helmets. And that's when you start to, you know, you know, I guess question everything. It just kind of makes you realize you don't. Well, really it, it is amazing. Anymore. And this is, um, you know, I, I call it like going down the rabbit hole. It seems for different people. Uh, for me, uh, it was economics a lot. I've studied economics a lot when I was younger, when I was in college. And then I, I you know, got older and I realized that I didn't know where the dollar bill that I spent every day actually came from. And it was like, huh. So I, you know, I started doing some research into that. Then it was like, well, this is interesting, you know. And and so it is, it's funny, like the Syria thing is the same thing. I mean, if you're listening to the mainstream media, the narrative that you get is completely different than what is actually going on. I, I mean, these guys to this day, I keep hearing... Uh, you know, Bashar Assad the, the, is this horrible butcher. He's killed 500,000 of his own people in this horrible civil war. And then you look into it and it's like, yeah. well, it looks like the U.S. funded uh, an invasion. <laughs> you know, how, how is that a civil war? Exactly. Yeah, 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 for sure. I mean, there was a, we found a 2005 CNN interview with Assad and um, Christine Amanpour, I think. And she literally says in the interview, like, you know, Assad, the, the rhetoric of regime change is coming your way. And he's like, yeah. he's like, yeah, I know, I'll be all right. <laughs> and years later, here we are. <laughs> I know. Uh, I don't know if you know uh, uh, General Wesley Clark. Oh, yeah. Have you ever seen this yeah. yeah. video? And just like that video, I think I remember seeing it back in uh, high school. And that video just cemented everything for me. Like it just explained everything. That one is a big yeah. eye opener. I mean, yeah, talk about, um, you know, going down that rabbit hole. I mean, when you realize that all this stuff has been planned and pre-planned and in the works. Have you guys ever done just, I mean, what are your thoughts about like 9-11 or the 9-11 truth movement? Have you done any research into that? Because that starts to get, you know, a little more controversial, but. Yeah. He's done uh, more, right? I, I've done a lot of research about it, and uh, I admit sometimes I get depressed thinking about it. <laughs> because, you know, you knowing from knowing what everybody else thinks and what the media says, and then looking into it, I start asking all these questions, and I'm, you know, sometimes I'm just, just afraid to talk to different people about it because I don't know what someone else will think. Just like these glaring holes, these glaring holes in the official story, I'm just like, you know, I, a lot of times I just keep to myself about it. What are, what are some mm -hmm. of the, um, I'm from New York, so it's like, a, you know, my whole family, yeah. it's a, you know, he's from East Coast too, but 
I've read about it a little bit, but I try to, I haven't gone too much into it just because I know how much of a rabbit hole it is. But what are, <laughs> what are like some of the things that stood out to you about the whole, about, you know, 9-11 as being kind of odd? And- Tower 7. I mean, the strangest thing about it is the buildings falling down at free fall speed without, and I mean, just mm-hmm. falling straight down in their own footprint at free fall speed. That's a pretty tough, you know, like, how does that happen without something else? That's not like if a fire, you know, any, any architect before 9-11, any architect would have told you that that would have been physically impossible without, you know, that if, if there's an impact from the side then the building is going to fall over. You know, it's not going to fall straight down. If there had been the pancake theory, then you would have seen the pancakes. There would have been a hundred floors, you know, on top of each other. Instead, the whole, the buildings just kind of turned to dust. Um, so, you know, it's pretty sketchy. I, I think that some of the ways that the Bush and Cheney acted around the whole thing, the fact that they had to be interviewed by Congress together, you know, they wouldn't interview s- separate. It's like <laughs> it's the first thing that cops do is separate you to see if your stories are straight, you know. These guys wouldn't do that, no. And they wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't go on the record with what they said. It's like, come on, guys, <laughs> you know. Yeah. So. But that is, I yeah. mean, that's a whole, that's a whole other level. And you do, you go down these rabbit holes and you find out that maybe the truth isn't what they're telling you. And the more independent research that I've done, and I, you know, I've seen you guys doing the same kind of work that once you peel back the layers of what the corporate media is feeding you, I mean, it's fun. Like you talk about you're Googling and you'll Google and you'll see 50 articles from the corporate media. And then you'll find that one or two or three articles from the, an independent press. Like I think about, I don't know if you've read Eva Bartlett's work on Syria, but these journalists yeah. that are oh, actually uh, there, yeah. you know, so, and you're, you know, you're listening, you're reading an article, right. say on the Washington Post, which to me is famous for like, our sources is, is someone from the CIA, you know, someone in the CIA <laughs> said <laughs> that the Russians did it, you know? Oh man, those Russians, yeah. I can't believe it. And then it gets, you know, then it's in the New York Times and then it's all over the place. And then, so you're Googling it and you see, you know, oh, the Russians did it, the Russians did it or wh- whatever, you know, Bashar Assad did it. <laughs> and then, and then you yeah. find the independent journalist that's actually doing real work or, you know, real investigative journalism and they have actual source material, you know, real primary documents that you're yeah. looking yeah. at and you're like, oh, wait a minute, you know, this guy, this person has a pretty solid argument. And I think maybe, you know, the reality is a little different than what you're getting on the mainstream media. Yeah, for sure. I think a lot of times I use the uh, mainstream media as like a starting off point, like it'll bring up a subject matter. And then you want to go look at what the independent media is doing, you know, because they're the ones that like, like you said, oftentimes they have all these sources backed up in there. And then, the, you know, mainstream media just, yeah. yeah. In terms of documentation and sources, uh, independent media always seems to have. I think because people question it so much, they're almost forced to have more sources. Yeah, more to you know, I don't story. know if you know James Corbett. He does uh, something called the Corbett Report. Yeah, oh. I interviewed him a few weeks yeah. back, and he was—he's like tight. You know, he was insistent that, like, hey, when you're doing work yeah, like I do, you've got to check and double check and triple check. And so he's always got his stuff sourced. I, I think he does really immaculate work, and it's kind of like. And that's that's what you do do because you know the mainstream media is going to be pointing their fingers and saying, "Oh, nobody thinks like you. Nobody believes what you're saying." And I don't even think that's true anymore. I think a lot of people are starting to recognize that the corporate media is so 
you know, they like as you say, they're bought and paid for. I mean, there's commercials, you know. <laughs> Like, there's commercials from companies that are, are getting billions of dollars from the military industrial complex to go to these wars, you know? So why, why wouldn't there's like Anderson Cooper that makes like $10,000 yeah, right. a minute or something like that. I mean, somebody like that. Yeah. <laughs> I think there's still, I definitely think more um, people are like turning, but there's still that like, if you question too much, that's why like the 9-11 thing is a big thing. If you start to question too much, people start to like want to label you as that conspiracy person still. And it's like, no, actually, we're the, like, we're the rational ones really looking and trying to dig yeah, in yeah. and find stuff. But shouldn't still. I mean, I got kicked out of a group once because I posted my article about the white helmets. And I was like, and I was encouraging the people. I was like, I'm just sharing this article I wrote. And I was like, just go look for yourself on the, twi on the white helmets Twitter. I was like, I wasn't even trying to argue. And they were like, you're crazy. You're blah, blah, blah. I'm like, just your Twitter feed. And the people wouldn't look at the Twitter feed. It was like they didn't I, want to. I've had that exact same uh, experience on like a local discussion list that I was a part of. And I kind of even knew. I even used to do local radio around here. And I kind of had to keep my voice. You know, like I, I wouldn't ask direct questions. Um, it's, a, it's a lot more. I feel a lot yeah. more liberated. <laughs> Um, being on the internet and being able to talk about whatever I want to, because when I was on the radio, it was a little bit like, oh, I don't know if I really want to talk about this on the air. I don't know what the management's going to think, you know? Um, but I was on a local discussion list where I kind of opened, went ahead and opened up and was like, you know, I, I want to talk about, um, this or this or this. And I swear I couldn't get them to, they would be like, you're just talking crazy. And I'd be like, well, what about this article? You know, Kent? <laughs> Can you look at the article? And they'd be like, we don't have to look at the article because we know it's just crazy. And I'm like, well, you know, and at yeah, one point I was like, really like the source of the article was, uh, you know, a, an MD that had been the um, editor of the New England Journal of Medicine. And then it had two other like Nobel Prize winning chemists and physicists as, as sources. And so I was like, okay, what did you read the article? Because I think these sources seem to be pretty sound. <laughs> they wouldn't do it. They wouldn't even look at the at the article. I was trying to hold their hands and be like, this is how you do research, you know? <laughs> because it's so it's scary. There, yeah. that's, there's like a psychological block or so, you know, something is going on where they don't want to see. They want to trust the mainstream media. Uh, I don't even know. I mean, it's it's a fascinating topic. We should we could talk this out a little bit. Like, why do people they want to believe? I think they know. Like, don't they know the politicians are corrupt and the corporate media? You know, like, but they want it to be true so badly. I think, <laughs> I think it's like a it's like a it's a big paradigm shift that I think you kind of go through. That because um, I remember when I just remember this moment where I was like. Oh, it's like, you know? Yeah, just the epiphany. Yeah, it's like, whoa. And, and it's, it's, a, it's a big shift in your thinking, you know, when you're used to thinking um, one way, you know? I, I think it's cognitive dissonance. <laughs> a lot of that has to do with it. People just refuse just to, they refuse to believe what they've been told by somebody that looks in, nice in a fancy suit or yeah. something. Like it. I think um, there was this, there was this uh, professor at Yale University that did an experiment. I'm sure you probably know about it, where they, they did an experiment where they said this guy in a lab coat, you know, I forgot, I forget how it goes, but I'll probably send you a link or something. I think I talked about it in a recent video, 
But they said that the way how the brain, human brain operates, if someone that looks very professional tells someone to do something, they actually do it, even though if they're not like a doctor or a, or a physicist or anything, because it actually rewrites the reality in their brain. Mm-hmm. I've been fascinated just by the psychology. Like I've been reading uh, the crowd, the crowd oh, wow. by Gustave Le Bon. And all these uh, crowd psychology books just to understand like the popular mind and why people think the way they do. A lot of group think. Yeah. And fear too. I think fear. I remember um, I was researching the election and I was um, looking into all the articles about psychology about the election and just what happens when you instill fear, how much like um, logical power it really gives you. It kind of tends to polarize people. They retreat into their corners where they feel safe. Um, and then they want like a more authoritarian person to lead them because they're afraid. So I think we've had a lot of fear for a long time, you know, since 9-11 because of the terrorist attacks. And then you have a, a leader now who's instilling fear everywhere he goes, you know. So I, I think it kind of sure. corners Sure. I mean, the constant push for war and the threats about war and the threats of North Korea and what's happening with Russia or China or, you know. Um, I think it does keep the American people kind of in a place where they are not really, you know, they're not really thinking rationally, actually. They're thinking they're coming from a place of fear and they're not able to just, you know, take a few deep breaths and and wonder what the heck is really going on. (laughs) Because, you know, I mean, I think uh, what you guys are touching on with your work is that the the U.S., actually, the U.S. is the one that's the aggressor in, (laughs) you know, I mean, I think that's like... The paradigm shift that you're talking about actually is to go, wait a minute, maybe we're the bad guys, you know? Like, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And I think that's hard for people to listen to also. I, re- I, re- I like Chomsky a lot. You know, you read him and he's a pretty strong critic of the United States, but uh, I forgot his latest book, but it was going through like the history of the United States and just documenting how many like coups we've funded and all these pretty awful things that we've kind of backhandedly done. And I've asked, uh, I think I asked my dad to read it too. And it was really upsetting to read about your own country yeah. doing these things, you mm-hmm. know, I want to hear it, but it's true. You when know, you, it's just really hard to hear. You know, when you've been told you're the winner your entire life, I mean, <laughs> it's and not only over, but... the winner, but the, but moral, morally superior. Like you, you have won because you are morally superior. It sounds to me now, now from my point of view, it's like the, the light of Rome, you know, every road leads to Rome or whatever. Cause I'm so used to now thinking of the United States as a, as an empire. But when I was kind of waking up into this thinking, I was really realizing, um, this actually reminds me last night, I was, uh, listening to the Megan Kelly's interview with Vladimir Putin and I think it was one of the things that really (laughs) pissed Putin off, even from Megyn Kelly. Like, she would ask him a question, and she would come from this point of view that sounded so arrogant to him, you know? Like, you Americans, you know, why why are you always moralizing? I mean, he said something, like, she was talking about the average American thinks of you as some kind of a despot who kills journalists, you know? She asked him this question, and he was (laughs) like, what?! He, he was like, look, you know, we're a normal country, just like any other country. We have some problems. I don't mind if you come into the room and you, you know, and you are sort of critical like a friend would be critical and you help us out to solve some of these problems. But when you start to moralize at us, you know, 
And, yeah, yeah. And I just, I've started to think that about so much of the way American foreign policy, I mean, they actually have the term American exceptionalism. Like, they go, they go to other oh, countries yeah. and they're like, we're just better than you, so you have to do what we say, right? <laughs> it's just our nature. Yeah. We're just better. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and, and then, and, you know, and it's funny too because now, like, I think in the past, like I, I would watch some of these war movies, and you kind of like, yeah, it's a good movie or whatever. And now you watch it. And I'm so just much like, right. oh, propaganda. Oh my god, so much propaganda. propaganda. Yeah, you know? yeah. I just did this interview actually with this guy Tom Secker, who wrote a book recently called National Security Cinema, and he did a FOIA request on um, just how much they propagandize through the movies. And every movie that they make that uses any kind of any kind of military connection then the military gets the final say as to whether or not. And uh, he had thousands of examples of movies where they were able to twist the movie or change things or, you know, just so that the United States became the good guys or the anti-war message would would be sort of tempered or the, the bad guy became a civilian contractor instead of the army or, you know, they just tweak it constantly, these little tweaks in all of our, in all of our entertainment media. Um, to make themselves out to look better than they really are. So even if you have an anti-war message, and this kind of goes full circle to your talking about, I mean, where is the anti-war message in the United States right now? I mean, it's coming from citizen journalists like yourselves who are, because nobody else is standing up against, against all the war propaganda anymore. I mean, it's just not happening. Yeah. yeah. When you do, you get called out by the people that bought the propaganda. I, <laughs> I think in my last job, when you know, before I moved to Los Angeles, I was in Connecticut. I was calling out the war propaganda in American Sniper. I was just pointing out all these things to everybody at my job, and everyone was just like, "What are you? You're un-American." <laughs> blah blah blah. Like, no, this is like this is stuff from what Joseph Joseph Goebbels was in Nazi Germany. Like, yeah, blood. yeah, absolutely. Just like, understand. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> to question your country now is like un-American, but. It's, you know, you question it because the government has become un-American, you know, the government is not, not the American ideal anymore. And so people are trying right. to question it, but people, so, um, someone, someone said a quote, I forgot how the quote goes, but it was like, if people are so like, um, pledged and devoted to symbols, then they won't be devoted to actually like the truth and justice and stuff. So we're so blindly devoted to these, like, you know, artificial symbols of patriotism and not actual real, like integrity mm -hmm. of our country and, and yeah stuff. which you know which they do on purpose i mean they know like you're talking to rain about uh, Le Bon. i did an interview a few years back about edward bernays same kind of thing i mean he wrote a oh. book called on propaganda like <laughs> these guys are openly <laughs> talking about how you know oh this is the new democracy you know where we manipulate the people so that the elites can do what they want you know and you're like what did he just write that is that what yeah, it's there. Yeah. <laughs> you know, all these books are just out there for everybody to read, but people choose to ignore them. Well, that's what's so amazing, too, is that the more like you dive into this kind of work, the more obvious it becomes. Um, you know, it really is like The Wizard of Oz. Like, you pull away the curtain and you're like, oh, um, 
I mean, it's not, it's not a conspiracy theory, you know, it's like right in front of your face. If you just, you know, stop looking at the bells and whistles. I can't, I I wonder if you all have encountered this actually, because I encounter this a lot when I'm trying to make an argument is production value. Like if you're a production value, which by the way, I think you guys website looks great. I wanted to plug that because putting that together did a great job. Um, because people will nitpick that kind of stuff and be like, oh, that, um, you know, that website just doesn't look that slick. So everything that is in it must be wrong, you know, (laughs) and you're like, wait a minute, what about the facts? You know, what about the source material? They won't even look at it. Yeah, it's a big one, I think. And unfortunately, because the people that are doing this kind of work are not the corporate mainstream yeah, media. Not, well, that's, it's it's box, amazing. Yeah, know? you're not getting paid. You can't, you know, most of it. I mean, I, this is not my full-time job, you know. So exactly. um, it's a labor of love. And it is it is amazing um, that people will be so critical without even being being able to engage in the real conversation. What what did you think about the chemical attack in Syria that caused Bush or Trump, sorry, to to uh, to do that missile attack? I mean, that was to me. I don't even know. Like it smelled so bad of some kind of really fishy, bizarre setup where suddenly there's a you know, oh, the sarin gas attack, gotta bomb the crap out of them, and you're like, what? Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, it's perfect. I know, it's low tide at the yeah, beach. Right. That's what I smell like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean i i try to look back at the like the first chemical chemical attack back in 2013 when obama tried to bomb them because of uh the same exact thing that happened and, and you know people trump and his administration they said we got to bomb them bomb them and then this whole time i'm saying where is the evidence why is it anyone investigating this like have you learned from iraq have you learned from afghanistan like, remember what happened there? But nobody, no one in the corporate media was talking about this. Nobody was asking these questions at all. Yeah. I think, uh, wasn't it Seymour Hirsch that did, like, a big article um, where he analyzed it? Um, I don't know if you saw that. Did you see that I don't article? remember. I don't recall. Yeah, he yeah. did. A, so he's, a, like, a Pulitzer yeah. Prize-winning journalist, and he's, um, you know, whistleblown on other things. And so he analyzed it all, and he basically did this whole long article talking about how um, you know what it was? He he had gotten a lot of contacts in like the U.S. intelligence and saying how all these people behind the scenes actually knew in the White House that it wasn't Assad and that the, his contacts were all telling him that, that they knew it wasn't Assad, that the White House knew it wasn't Assad, but they went out <clears> and did it. But I remember a couple of the other things were, was, um, well, for one, it just doesn't make sense, right? Like, yeah. why would Assad? Yeah. And he's winning the war, too. Yeah. Of, of all, I mean, he did people. it, what, two days after Tillerson was saying, yeah, we're not going to take out Assad anymore. And, the, you know, this recent one. But the one in 2013 was even more bizarre because the UN had just shown up. To, oh, now's yeah. a great time to slip in some chemical weapons attacks while the UN inspectors are here so they can just watch it happen. I know. I mean, that's the biggest thing that makes you really have to question. Like, I he's got to be the stupidest person in the world if even if he is doing these chemical attacks to do it right now. <laughs> I know, and, and even then, John Kerry back in 2014, when uh, Assad gave up all the chemical weapons, they confirmed it all over in the news organizations on Twitter. They confirmed it, they confirmed it everywhere that he gave them up, and yet they still want to bond them. After he supposedly gave everything up, I mean, you all confirmed that he gave these weapons up. 
Yeah. <laughs> when you dig into it, there's just more and more little things. Like, um, uh, I mean, I remember that, you know, a lot of the evidence came from the white helmets for, you know, they're the uh, ones that were reporting yeah, that. Of course, really <laughs> yeah. And then <laughs> really I know one of the main doctors that was uh, tweeting and giving evidence was actually on trial in England for uh, kidnapping, for being part of a terrorist network that kidnapped hmm. um, British journalists brother were on trial and then they were let go because they couldn't get the witnesses to testify but it's just you start peeling all those things back and adding them together and you know the story that made the most sense was that um the uh, like the terrorists actually had their own weapons and then you know uh, russia uh, russia or whoever dropped or syria uh, syria dropped bomb on <clears throat> them you know and then happened to hit their own weapons and it and explode you know mm. hey, more sense. I mean, we know that the the rebels have the capabilities of making weapons because back in 2013 with Jasmine de la Ponte, the French um, the French UN inspector, they had videos of all the tunnels underneath. I think uh, I think I forget where the last chemical weapon attack happened, but they found this weapons cache of all these weapons that they have, homemade bottle rockets. They have videos on live leak with these rebels shooting off these weapons back in 2013, and so with that evidence out there back from from so long ago they didn't ask these questions after you know this year's chemical right. attack at all they just you know, we had to bomb them right, right. away yeah. forget about the well, evidence that's, you from know before. one of the things i guess that's a big red flag for me is as you say no one seems to be learning from the past like the the iraqi weapons of mass destruction weren't there and so why, you know, how do we know that Syria has chemical weapons again? You know, like why and how the American people can be so manipulated by the corporate media. It actually blows my mind that they, you know, they really just don't have a long enough attention span. Um, or, I mean, I guess it's it and it is kind of hard to believe that these professional journalists that look great on TV, you know, are just lying to you or, or at least not telling you the, the whole truth. Um, which is a lot of times just what they do. They, they only give you part of the truth and they don't give you the whole truth. So what do you think has been going on with the whole Russian scenario lately? I mean, not only do we have this whole, you know, Russia hack the election thing happening. I actually had a kind of a, uh, a one of those epiphany moments in 2013 when Putin arranged the deal. I mean, the United States was ready to attack Syria and then Putin said, well, you know, here's this deal I, I made with Assad that he's going to give up all of his chemical weapons if you don't attack. And it was like, it shocked, I think it shocked everyone. Like everyone in the world was shocked and stunned. And then the United States just couldn't attack anymore because he, he gave up his, you know, it was like, um, I, I know you're a boxer, Lawrence. I do Tai Chi, which is the very opposite way of fighting, but. We have a saying that softness always overcomes hardness. And um, and so it was like it was like Putin doing something that was so soft that no one could attack. I mean, how could you attack that with without obviously being in the wrong? You know, and I thought it was just brilliant. And I've actually had a different, you know, a different take on Russia since then, maybe a little more of the of the Oliver Stone perspective, you know. Where it's like, I'm not sure that these guys really are the bad guys. I mean, I'm not saying Putin is a saint or anything, but, you know, compared to the aggression that you see from U.S. foreign policy, um, you know, 
so what is going on with the, I mean, what are your feelings about the, you know, the, the Russia and hack the election kind of thing and all this collusion and what's been going on with the DNC and all of that? I mean, it's just gotten so crazy. Oh, I, the whole thing with Russia, I feel like the thing that happened in the, in the uh, DNC, they got caught with their foot in their mouth and they basically, I think they needed someone as a mm -hmm. scapegoat. This is just what I believe. And they needed someone as a scapegoat, so Russia was like an obvious scapegoat because Russia and the U.S., they don't have really good relations because stuff with the 1980s in Afghanistan and the Middle East, there's a, some mm -hmm. bad history there. So obviously Russia is like a really good scapegoat. And, you know, they want to go after Russia too because of the stuff with Syria. They're, Russia is the only opposition that they have that's blocking, keeping the U.S. out, out of Syria. That's their biggest threat in Syria. So that's why I believe that, you know, this is why they're attacking Russia. They're building up, I think they're building up a lot of um, propaganda so that in case when the U.S. does attack Russia, everybody knows that they're the bad guys because they hacked our elections and they're doing all this bad stuff to us. Mm -hmm. So now people are, already, people are already in the mode for war against them. They've been conditioned for it already versus it just happening out of nowhere. Yeah. I think like, <clears throat> We're pretty similar in terms of how we view it. I view it a little bit like I think Russia did was involved in our elections. I don't think that they are like the devil. I don't think that like I think um, you know we have a lot of other problems with our elections in terms of like corporations and mega billionaires really buying mm. our elections. You know, it's not it's not all uh, uh, Russia. It's you know we have a lot of other problems with our elections. Um, but I don't think that Russia, I mean, I think we get involved in everybody else's elections, too. I just think that's kind of what countries seem to do. At least big, powerful countries like to go mess right. with the elections. <laughs> Jamaica, for one. Yeah. Well, the, the United <laughs> yeah. States is definitely, that was something Putin mentioned in the interview with Megyn Kelly that I saw last night. He was like, you guys go into every country. I think he even said, you could put your finger anywhere in the world and you're going to have people complaining that the Americans are messing with their domestic policy. So when you, when you look at everything in that context, you know, the U S always tries to say that we're for democracy and for freedom. But when you look at all these countries that the U S overthrown and everything, it, it seems like it's the complete opposite. They yeah. don't want any of that. Like it's a threat. Yeah, to it's me. it's crazy. I, you yeah. did you've done a lot of research into the whole Saudi Arabia connection. Not a lot of people really know about that either. Do you want to kind of talk about? I mean, because it just seems like the U.S. actually is backing the worst regimes on the planet, and then they're pretending like they're you know they're doing it for freedom or for democracy or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel like we're just like Saudi Arabia is like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. right. You know? <laughs> <laughs> you know, we do what they say. It's about yeah. money and oil, and yeah. they have it. Uh, I I first started questioning Saudi Arabia after I found out 15 of the 19 hijackers on 9/11 were Saudi Arabian, and I think it was about maybe I think it was probably 12 years ago when I found that out, and that's when I started really questioning them and asking questions. And um, I mean, how did we start talking about it this year? I think. Well, yeah, I think we were. We went back to. Um, he's big on the petrodollar and like how our dollar yeah. is tied to. So like the deals made back when Nixon was in power, where um, they would give us oil and we'd give them protection, basically. Yeah. Um, and then they would tie their. They would only sell their oil on in our dollar. 
Um, and I noticed the U.S. goes after any country that, you know, Saudi Arabia doesn't like. Or they, or they turn a blind eye to any country that Saudi Arabia attacks. Like, let's say Yemen, for example, what's going on right now. Like, the, Saudi Arabia, they're bombing fishing villages with, like, poor people in them. With million-dollar bombs and everything. I'm just like, what? And then the U.S. is just not looking at it at all. They're just looking over there. Yeah, and know. selling them more weapons while they do it. It's crazy. Yeah, exactly. Did you know that uh, like both Saddam Hussein and and uh, and Gaddafi in Libya were both talking about shifting from the petrodollar bef- right before they got bombed? Like it's <laughs> it's that's pretty yeah. much the no no. Like all the rest of it is is uh, kind of kind of smoke and mirrors. But when you look at the uh, at who's using that dollar and and what's going on with the with the dollar as the the world reserve currency that's when you find out i mean that's the real driver of all of this i mean that's why i think right now they they hate the russians really because the russians of the bric nations are getting together and they're and they're creating this alternative international currency to to combat the petrodollar and so once you get that petrodollar thing like once that clicks in your brain, I think you start to understand foreign policy in a totally different way. I, I've just learned to think of it as it's just uh, that colonialism never really stopped. You know, I mean that's what I really realized. The World Bank and the International Monetary Fund and the and the and the system of central banks that are all connected. Um, that's just modern colonialism. They go in. You know, the first thing they did in Libya. When they bombed Libya and the quote-unquote rebels took over, the first thing they did was they started a central bank that was connected to the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund. I mean, just like, that's why they were pissed at Gaddafi, because he was independent from all of that. So, I mean, that's what you're seeing. You know, we all get taught, oh, you know, Gandhi happened and India was liberated and now, you know, there's no more colonialism. We're all done with that. But when you look at the finances and these big transnational corporations, they're still going to the same places. I had an epiphany one time, you know, like British Petroleum and Cargill Corporation. Those are basically owned by the Queen of England. And that's the biggest oil company and the biggest like food company, wheat company in the country, in the United States. Like in the United States, like did we win the revolution or does the Queen still get all of our resources, you know, right? Like, I'm not sure that that, that much has ever changed from e- even from like feudal times. So it's it's definitely crazy. I mean, it, you know, it's, it's a crazy rabbit hole that you go down once you can break away from that, you know, that corporate worldview and start to really analyze things from this independent perspective. Um, you know, it's... Yeah. it's about me, yeah, it's not about like um, we try to say it's about like oh we're gonna go save these people or whatever, but it's really about like like staying the number one economy and having that global dominance as the number one economy. That's why we also you also look for pipelines too when things are happening, like where are pipelines going yeah. and so on. And uh, you know, I, I we haven't touched on uh, Israel's involvement in the Middle East yet, and that's gonna be something that I'm personally gonna be taking care of because Israel has a lot to do with you know, the Middle East and the U.S. Because Israel, Saudi Arabia, and the U.S., it's all a little triangle. And that's basically what's doing all these things in the Middle East right now. 
and I really wanted to talk about them later. In another video yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. It's hard to it's uh, it's another one that's hard to discuss, kind of like the nine eleven thing, because once you get into you know talk talking about Israel and you get into, I mean, you can get nailed as being anti-Semitic, and it's just becomes so sketchy. And it's like I don't, I actually. Um, you know, I very rarely delve into those waters either because it's just like, God, yeah, I'm just, you know, it's anti I, I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> Can't we just stop killing people? I, it, it sounds so simple. You know, it's a weird, you know, it's a weird one. And that, um, for a long time too, I never understood why we always painted Iran as like this awful enemy. Like we've, we've done that right. for so long. Never, even when I've been less, less politically active, I'm, I've never understood why we've always painted Iran as this, you know. And then you start to look into it and Saudi Arabia and Mideast control and yeah. all that. But, you know, you mess around with them, too, so much, you know. Back in the you know, what I found out recently was that in Saudi Arabia, because I, I was listening to your analysis um, preparing for this, and you were talking about, uh, how, you know, how they found oil in Saudi Arabia and how most of Saudi Arabia, the government of Saudi Arabia is, is Sunni, but the Wahhabi Sunni, that's really basically they're the jihadis. They're the ones that, that have created this, you know, very radical form of Islam. And uh, Iran is Shia, of course. So that's really the, the major conflict. But what I found out just recently that now everything's starting to make sense is that the land on top of... of where in Saudi Arabia, where most of the oil is, the people that live on top of that land are Shia, and they feel more affiliated to Iran and and Persian, you know, and the Persian history than they do to the the Wahhabis and the Sunnis, and so I think the whole thing stems from that Saudi Arabia is so, is so afraid that this this group of people in Saudi Arabia are going to get funded, you know, by the Iranians to take that that oil back that they fabricated this whole conflict basically to make sure that that doesn't happen. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah, I know, right? I just found it, I found that out a few a few months ago and it's like suddenly, you know, some of the dominoes fell into place cuz it was like, okay. <laughs> yeah, because it doesn't make sense. I mean, what is I mean, the reason why, you know, they they over to overthrew Iran in 1953, this was another their classic Whenever the Western imperialists wanted to take over a country's natural resources, they just claimed they were communists. You know, no, they're not communists. They don't just—they just don't like it when you steal their stuff. You know, like, no, those are nationalist communists. They want to keep their stuff for themselves. Like, and now they call them terrorists. You know, no, but that's their stuff. You know. <laughs> But we're, we're, of we're course. exceptional, right? So, American exceptional. Yeah, we can so take we can everybody's that, stuff. You know? <laughs> should have I know, it's funny. And so much of it boils down to these oil guys and the petrodollar. I mean, yeah. I mean, the fact that we have an oil guy right now in this administration, Rex Tillerson, out there in the open, they, they put it on his title as his I previous know, right? employment. Yeah. I mean, I was surprised that they did that on CNN and MSNBC that they put his previous title. I was like, wow, it's just out there now. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you put an oil man as, you know, head of the State Department, it's like, 
okay, that's obvious. Our oil, you know, foreign foreign policy based on oil. Right. Like, <laughs> you know? Yeah, it is crazy. I mean, I didn't, and I still, I still don't think that Trump is as bad as the Bush, Cheney, Rumsfeld years. I mean, that was bad. You know, Bush, Cheney coming from Halliburton, and they were just the such the old school military industrial people. Um, with all the deep state connections, you know, that was like, oh, my God. I mean, that's where I you look at them and you you can believe that they would pull a 9-11 just to get people to, you know, start this major war on terror so they could make mega bucks, take over the Middle East. <laughs> but but then, you know, and I actually and I think that Trump. I mean, I don't know. I don't know if there's if people win the elections with these electronic voting machines these days. There's no way to even double check, you know, the, if the elections have any integrity <laughs> at all, which is what the real that's the other thing that like the real story is not did yeah. the Russians hack the American elections? It's that the American elections are so hackable, you know, like, why don't we just fix yeah. that first? <laughs> Go back to paper ballots yeah. and make it to where we can tell who we voted for, you know, <laughs> But, um, you know, so I think and I, I think that people you're given a choice between the lesser of two evils and Hillary was just so corrupt. I think people voted for Trump just because they were hoping that he really was going to drain the swamp. But I mean, the same thing happened with Obama. As soon as he got into office, you see the cabinet picks and it's like, oh, yeah, the oil guys, the Goldman Sachs guys. The, you know, the Council on Foreign Relations people, the same, same as it ever was, you know, when, when the presidents pick their cabinet, that's when it's like, we should, we have to get rid of the left, right paradigm because these rich guys, they don't, they don't use the left, right paradigm either. You know, they use the top down paradigm and they don't care if it's Obama or Trump (laughs) or Bush, you know, they're going to get their way. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, Carol Quigley. You remember it back in 1992 with uh, Bill Clinton? He was thanking mm-hmm. Carol Quigley. I'm uh, working on a video right now talking about him specifically because what his philosophy basically shaped the entire American, American political system of how right. it is today. Like Republicans, Democrats, they're not really that different. They're basically the same thing. You could vote and change for a different face, but the same policies and the same ideals are going to be the same no matter what. Yeah. Have you seen the documentary uh, Requiem for an American Dream? No. It's a it's it's a it's a Noam Chomsky documentary. So he kind of walks you through like ten parts, and it was really what like kind of opened my eyes to the whole left right thing. Because what it does is he basically breaks down like neoliberalism and how that's taken over in our Mm -hmm. country and all that. But what he talks about is that like in the '60s we had this huge uprising, like this upswelling of greater democracy and all that. But then he looks at the parties and how they responded in the 70s to it. And they both responded the same way. And you can tell because there's like these internal memos, like the Powell Memorandum, which was written by this guy who then became, he went on to the Supreme Court. And he actually was, uh, he wrote the majority opinion in the first case where they ruled that like corporate uh, money was free speech. So he started kind of this whole corporation and corporatism right. takeover and all that. But right responding to uh the 60s they basically said that um like we had that like we couldn't handle all this democracy and that our capitalist countries being threatened and so they started pushing all these sort of um pro-business people and they wanted to put like pro-business people into our schools and pro-business people you know into the courts and all that 
And then the left said the same thing. They said, whoa, we had too much democracy. We can't handle that. And that's, and there's a, another report too from the Trilateral Commission that is representative of the left hmm. in the 70s. And it says the same thing, like we can't handle this, democ this much democracy, like we need to suppress the people and all this. So they both look at like, we can't handle a real democracy because our system, they think that it's too much for the system rather, you know, it's overwhelming the system and so on. So they both need to keep the people controlled so that they can right. the government rather than have democracy. Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, that's fascinating. And then you start to get into this, I mean, the concept of technocracy, even where it's like the bureaucrats or the academics are, you know, making all the choices and they're not really including the voice of the people. Um, I, I think that's a real serious, I mean, I think that's going on. That's what's happening is that it's like these politicians, these rich guys have managed to use like the academic class in a way to kind of, to really do some social engineering. They're doing a lot of this kind of social engineering. Yep. They're using this social psychology to really control the masses in a way that um, they're not, you know, they're not listening to us. We're not part of the conversation, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's the problem. So we've just got maybe a few minutes left. Do you want to kind of get back to the philosophy of citizen truth? I know that you were looking maybe to expand and find, get some more writers on board and things like that. I mean, what's, um, where are you going from here? You know? I can go first. Um, so for me, I'm more focused on the video side of things. I'm going to be writing some small articles every now and again, but I want to start putting clips together and interviews together for a full-length documentary. It's going to be a while before that can happen. That's what I really want to focus on now. And the yeah. subjects I'm going to be focusing on are some of the same things that we talked about now. It's just like a crash course on what you should know been going on in this country. Yeah. I think uh, I do more of like the writing and the website. You do a little more of the video. And for us, it's really just about... Um, citizen journalism, the idea that, I mean, I remember some people, I was asking about writing and they're like, oh no, I don't feel like I, you know, I know enough or I have a right to write anything or whatever. Everybody has a right to write and get your voice out yeah. and your opinion out. And that's what we're trying to do is let everybody who wants to have a voice, get their voice out. And then, so we can hear each other and talk to each other too, rather than being stuck in this, you know, I only talk to my Democrat friends or I only talk to my Republican friends or whatever. So we're trying to bring in anybody that wants to get their voice out. You know, when you write, um, anybody can write. You just have to back up what you say, you know, with sources and you, and anyone can do that. I mean, there's actually been times, I think when they're, um, talking about the Syria chemical attack and they asked the government what their uh, evidence was. And they said they had, that it was based on open source mm -hmm. evidence, which basically is just Google. Which is <laughs> right. <laughs> so we, we can all do the same thing, you know? So it's really just, Everybody wants to write, wants to get their voice out and representing as many different ideas so that we can find the truth. And then once you find the truth of a situation rather than these manufactured <clears throat> images, then you can work for solutions. I want the people to realize that they have a lot of power. That's the main yeah. thing I want to get yeah. out of this. I want to know that they have the power to take control of the country again. And shift, get people out of that left-right paradigm. Because as long as we're stuck in that, you know, it's going to be really hard to have a lot of power as, as a populace because they'll just yeah. be fighting each other. Yeah, it's actually been amazing, this idea of open source. I talked about it. The first guy that I uh, interviewed 
for this podcast, Robert David Steele, he has this concept of open source everything. He basically claims that if we could make everything open source, like stop having secrets, just use the internet, I mean, like, so our whole economy went open source, then everybody would be rich, you know, they would, we would become so efficient as a species. And I, I mean, I think it's, I think he's right. I think we waste so much money on the military, you know, first of all, that if we, if we could just take all yeah. that money and give it back to the people, you know, think about what we could all do with it. Um, but then I've heard the same thing. I mean, James Corbett was talking about that too, this idea of, of doing open source, you know, open source work on the Corbett report. I've even heard that the CIA, if you look into what those guys do, like 90% of what they get is open source information. So now <laughs> there's, a, there's this thing called the internet, people, you know, and we all have access to this information now. They can't hide it from us anymore. So, you know, it's great that yeah. you guys are doing what you're doing. Uh, at Citizen Truth, because I think this kind of independent work is necessary, just like you're saying, to empower the people. Everybody needs to start getting involved in this kind of journalism so that we can all wake up to our own empowerment. I mean, I think that's like what the shift is about, right, for me. And that's why I do these interviews yeah. is to try to wake people up to say you just even at the beginning of this, of when we were talking at the beginning of this interview about, you know, people want they, they seem to need this authority figure to tell them how to think. And it's like, you got to stop doing that. You have to learn to think for yourself and, and feel empowered to be able to do that for yourself. And then once everybody yeah. is doing that, then things are going to change in a good way for all of us because it's just going to be natural, you know, that knowledge will be powerful for everyone. Exactly. So let us know, you know, where we can get in touch with you. I know you guys are on YouTube and on Facebook. So let people know how they can find out more. Citizentruth.org. Yeah, our website. That's our website. And then also we're on YouTube, Citizen Truth on YouTube. We are on Twitter too. Yeah, we're on all the social media. Social media sites, Instagram. We're not on Snapchat yet. Yeah. <laughs> we're too old for Snapchat. I know, right? Don't yeah. <laughs> Tell me about it. My kids are teaching me um, how to yeah. spread the truth on, on the internet. And I'm like, really? <laughs> that, is that how to do it? They're like, yeah. Nobody's on Facebook anymore. Come on. <laughs> but yeah. citizentruth.org, that's our website. YouTube, Citizen Truth. Uh, Citizen Truth on Twitter. Citizen Truth on Instagram. That's basically where you could find us. Yeah. On Facebook, too. All right. Yeah. Killer. Shouldn't be too hard. All right. Uh, thanks <laughs> to Lorraine and uh, uh, Lauren, excuse me, and Arane for being on the show. I really appreciate it. And uh, if you've liked what you've heard, then please check out uh, The Shift's Patreon page, patreon.com backslash The Shift. If you want to find out more about what's going on in this podcast, go to my Facebook page at The Shift with Doug McKenty on Twitter at D McKenty or on the web at www.theshiftnow.com. And uh, if you look us up, on YouTube. You can find all my podcasts up there at The Shift. If you look up The Shift with Doug McKenty, it'll come up. Um, and we'll be on uh, iTunes really soon with the podcast on audio. So it'll be easy for everybody to follow there as well. So thanks again for being on the show. And thank you. Um, thanks, you know, we'll keep up. I'll keep up with what you're doing. And maybe we'll talk again sometime down, down the road. Yeah, of course. Have a good one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Take care. <laughs>